Christ to you. Well, I am excited today to get to spend some time with you in God's Word, examining the role of women throughout Scripture. I wanted, though, first to share a little bit with you about my own story and about my own journey of being a woman in ministry. I, I want to share with you a few pictures of my family. The first one, is, this is my grandpa. Um, my grandpa, Lord willing, will be 90 years old this year. He um, has served in the Assemblies of God Church uh, for 50 years, Mom, is that right? Something like that. I, grandpa, I didn't mean to get it wrong. He's watching online. Um, and uh, my grandfather was probably the first person, he, he was my first pastor, and he was the first person to show me what it meant to live a life of ministry. And the Assemblies of God Church is another denomination that affirms women as pastors, as lead pastors in leadership roles. My grandpa never told me that being a pastor was something that I couldn't do. That was never an idea that was given to me. The next picture, and she is grandma. I am sorry, but I liked this picture. Um, this is a picture of my grandma. Uh, my grandma taught adult Sunday school alongside my grandfather for years and years and years. And I took this picture last weekend as she had hauled out her current study on the book of Hebrews and sat me and our two girls down and taught us about Hebrews in her living room. Because my grandma is the first one who showed me what it meant to have a love for the word of God and to teach it to others. The next picture, and she's here today, and I hope she's okay with this picture. This is my mama and me. And um, my mom was the spiritual leader of our household. Uh, for the majority of my childhood, my dad didn't go to church with us. But my mom showed me what it meant to be, I'm going to cry because she's here. My mom showed me what it meant to continue to show up and to be a leader spiritually in your house. And I'm grateful for that. So thank you, Mom. The next picture is the church that I grew up in. This is St. Peter United Methodist Church in Blue Springs, Missouri. I am so proud that this is the church that formed me, that God used to form me. Um, it didn't hit me until I was preparing for this sermon that, oh my goodness, I preached my first sermon on that platform. I was 17 years old, and it was Youth Sunday, and I got to give the sermon. Um, and this was a healthy, it wasn't a perfect place, but goodness, I am so fortunate that I grew up in a healthy church that affirmed lay leadership, leadership of people just like you and me who just wanted to live lives, surrendered to the Lord, and they modeled that for me. And this church body is a big reason why I am standing up here today. And I share that with you this morning because I think it's so important for us to consider how we talk about women in leadership in the church. And as a church, our church is about to enter a new era for the first time in our 100 plus year history, BCC is going to have a female head pastor. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited. And and, you know, maybe your experience has been different than mine. Maybe you've never been a part, and I, I should have said, like, I had a female pastor growing up. But maybe that's not your experience. Maybe you've never been part of a church that has had a female in the head pastor position. Or 
Maybe you even come from a tradition that does not allow women to hold the office of lead pastor or even to preach. And I want you to know that whatever your history is, this is a safe place this morning. Everybody's welcome here. And we have respect for your history and your perspective. But my hope for us today is that we can spend some time together examining what God's word has to say about the importance of both genders embracing leadership in the church and consider what women did throughout the entire canon of scripture. You see, I I believe how we talk about women and men's capacity to lead in the church is critical for the mission of God to effectively move forward. Our language today impacts the future of the next generations. You see, for the church of the Nazarene, for this denomination, the question of whether women would preach and lead has been decided since the denomination's inception for more than 100 years. This was never a question. From the moment the church of the Nazarene began, the church affirmed women's place in leadership. In fact, let's take a quick look at our denomination's official statement on women in leadership in the church. The Church of the Nazarene supports the right of women to use their God-given spiritual gifts within the church and affirms the historic right of women to be elected and appointed to places of leadership within the Church of the Nazarene, including the offices of both elder and deacon. Now, depending on your denominational background, if you're a denominational mutt like I am, that word elder and deacon can mean lots of different things. In the Nazarene tradition, that means pastor. So we are standing on a great legacy a great tradition of women being affirmed in positions of leadership. And you might be sitting there this morning thinking, okay, great, that's what this one denomination decided. But how did you get here? What does the word of God say? And what what, what do I do with some of those verses that I've heard seem to say the exact opposite? I am indebted this morning to some fantastic resources that have helped guide my own study on this subject. Of course, first the Word of God, but also our denomination for all pastors who are currently working through the process of being ordained requires a six-week course on women, ordaining women into leadership positions in this church. It's a fantastic six weeks. Um, I have three books. I'd love to share them with you today. One is by Reverend Tara Beth Leach. It's called Emboldened. One is edited by our own Carla Sundberg. It's called Faithful to the Call. And then my most recent read is by Dr. Gupta here. It's called Tell Her Story. Um, These have been incredibly helpful to me. And I always want to give these to you as sort of a work cited (laughs) to let you know that there are great ways to continue to work alongside the Word of God for the Holy Spirit to illuminate um, God's purpose for both genders and leadership in the church. So I want to ask us today to consider three big questions. Who are women? What did women do in Scripture? And what did Jesus show us about women? So as we walk through, and I want you to have your Bible or your phone app out because we're going to be jumping around quite a bit in Scripture this morning. So take a minute and pull that out and maybe open two or three browser tabs so that you can grab a few different verses. But these are the questions as we dig into God's Word this morning that I want us to answer. Who are women? What did women do? And what did did Jesus show us about women? 
In order to answer the first question, we need to turn to Genesis 1 and 2, which are concurrent accounts of the creation of the world. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now the word here in Hebrew, Adam, is the word used for humankind. It does not mean Adam, nor does it mean male. So as we look at God creating humankind in his image, he's not, he's not focusing it on one gender or another. That word literally means human. Verse 28 continues, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is the command he gave to humankind. The identity of image bearing, the blessing of God, and the command of God is given to all humankind in these verses. The command to steward and to caretake the earth is given to humankind, male and female alike. This first chapter of Genesis illustrates a world in which humanity was created in two forms, both of whom are called to live out God's call on this planet. If we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 2, we find, again, a concurrent look happening at the same time at the creation story. Genesis 2 takes a more personal view of what's going on throughout creation. Now, this changes if we remember that these aren't, Genesis 1 and 2 are not meant to be read sequentially, that as, as in chapter 1 happening before chapter 2. They are concurrent stories, much like we read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same series of events, different takes on the same series of events. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18, we read this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh." Now, most of our translations look at verse 18 and read that the Lord God saw that man should not be alone, so he decides to make him a helper. Now, in our modern-day world, in our modern-day vernacular, we hear the word helper, and if we're not careful, we immediately, and I do it too, we immediately try to apply hierarchy to that relationship. We immediately try to put one person in charge, and one person as the assistant, if you will. But the original Hebrew word here, translated into that word helper, is the word ezer. And in scripture, this word ezer is used in three different ways. It's used here to describe the woman. It's used elsewhere, and it applies 
for nations to whom Israel applied for military aid, and it is also used to describe God as Israel's helper. This is a powerful connotation. When God creates Ezer, he's creating a powerful helper. Now, there's no indication here about whether woman is a minor or a major partner or that she contributes more or less than man or that man is in any way ruling over her or vice versa, that she is ruling over him. What we see here is a united species of humankind in two forms who need one another. Now, Genesis 3 comes along and the story changes because sin enters the picture and the relationship dynamics are forever altered. It is only after the fall of humanity that we begin to see the relationship between these two forms of humankind change. Specifically, these words in Genesis 3.16 are spoken to the woman, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This idea of rulership, the verb that is used there, does imply authority like a king ruling over a subject. And the word that's used for passion when she said that she will have passion for her husband is one that actually connotes a destructive desire. One commentator makes this note about the brokenness in Genesis 3 that the harmony that was present before sin is, bro is a relationship of equality. And then the sin enters the picture and turns it into a relationship of servitude and domination. Now, this is a striking contradiction to God's intent for the relationship between these two expressions of humankind. Dr. Gupta in his book says it this way, now some have tried to paint a picture of creation as a hierarchy that has been threatened by sin. Okay, so we have one alternative viewpoint here, that the, the picture of creation is a hierarchy that was threatened by sin. But a faithful reading of the creation account is a tale of harmonious partnership that was unraveled and frustrated by sin. See, I believe our answer of the question of who women are is this. Women are image bearers who were created to equally steward God's mission in the world. With that idea in mind then, that the original relationship between men and women was meant to be one of equal status and mutual responsibility, we can begin to answer the next question. What did women do throughout scripture? Now, it's not hard with a mindful eye to find examples of, of women in the Old Testament who acted in a leadership capacity on behalf of God's people. But for today's purposes, we're going to zero in on two First, let's take a look at Deborah. You can find Deborah's story in Judges chapters 4 and 5. And I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture references this morning. I hope you'll take them down. I hope you'll go home and you'll study them and you'll dive into God's word and you'll ask the Lord to help illuminate and, and help the word of God come alive to you. This is really hard to get through a lot of material in a very short amount of time. But if you want to read more about Deborah, look at Judges chapters 4 and 5. She is a prophet 
and a judge in a period of great tumult for the people of Israel. And at this time, what we think of judges, all right, when we hear the word judge, I get two images in my mind. One is currently culturally relevant. The other is only because I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. I think either Judge Judy or Judge Wapner. Um, that is only one element of, of what Deborah did. Deborah not only resolved disputes, Deborah also walked into battle in charge of an army of warriors. She also acted as a spiritual advisor, both individually and on a nationwide level. Her power and influence is great enough that she is able to bring other leaders into battle alongside her. It is clear throughout the account of her life that her leadership is accepted professionally, politically, and spiritually. Deborah, I was trying to think of a, of a um, gosh, of a, of a modern day comparison to what Deborah may be, but I, 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 and it, what it came was she was president. Like she, she was a leader and she led her people bravely and well. And she was loved and respected by all people in Israel. Another powerful woman in the Old Testament is Queen Esther. Esther is chosen to represent the entire community of Jewish people living in the kingdom of Persia. She bravely stands against an evil leader who desires to destroy the people of God. She calls on this entire group of people to fast and to pray. She works alongside Mordecai, giving him direction, compelling him to come along her, alongside her plan to save God's people. She begins a festival, Purim, that is still celebrated today. If I had more time... <laughs> With you this morning, I would tell you about Huldah, who we read about in 2 Kings chapter 22, a prophet who, when good King Josiah was looking to validate that the word of the Lord was true, he went to Huldah. He went to Huldah and asked her if the law was indeed God's word, and she validates through the Spirit, she validates that yes, these are God's words, the law is true. And in fact, we look back at Huldah in 2 Kings 22 and realize today that she is the first person to act in the process of establishing what makes up the biblical canon. So the things that you are reading in your Bible today, the first person to start to verify that, yes, these indeed were the words of the Lord, is Huldah in 2 Kings. It's incredible. I'd tell you about Miriam if we had more time, who, may, who the Lord uses to frame the events of the Exodus, acting as a prophet and providing the final commentary on Israel's salvation at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. We would talk about the wife of Isaiah, who is also called a prophet. We would talk about the wise woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14, who challenges and speaks truth to King David. The list, friends, goes on and on and on. In the Old Testament, Women lead and speak and prophesy just as their male counterparts do. I'm not even scratching the surface of the places in which women worked to exert influence and authority in Israelite society. Leadership comes from both men and women throughout the, the Old Testament, called and emboldened by God alone. Now let's turn our attentions to the New Testament. Now undoubtedly, 
the societal norms of Greco-Roman culture were overwhelmingly patriarchal. This was not a friendly time in history to be a woman. This idea of the paterfamilias, which was this idea that, that households and society were run by men, was created and perpetuated by Roman powers who were highly concerned with maintaining order among their people. Women were often treated as second-class citizens, were viewed as less intelligent, had fewer educational opportunities, and were not given the opportunity to hold elected positions. However, women held more influence than what the law would lead us to believe. Early Jewish texts speak of career women. It was not that women were confined to one segment of the home, and often women held civic and political influence for their family and cultural influence in the community. In fact, there are accounts that in many places in the Jewish synagogue, women held leadership titles of critical importance as we begin to examine the role of women in the early church is the account of Pentecost in Acts 2, where we find all the followers of Jesus and scholars agree that this is men and women alike together. Joined together all in one place, jumping into Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. All the believers were together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Peter goes on later in that chapter in verse 17 to quote the prophet Joel, reminding the people that God had fulfilled his promise to pour out my flesh upon, or pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. These words remind us that the Spirit has indwelled men and women alike, calling us to unity in Jesus so that we might together take responsibility for God's creation and for the Great Commission. In the early Christian church, women also served as leaders. One such woman, Phoebe, was named by Paul in Romans 16 as a respected leader in the church. The word Paul uses here is diakonos. This is the same word Paul uses to describe his own ministry, and it's the same words used in Romans 12 to discuss ministering and leading within the context of the church. Paul calls her a benefactor. She's a patron who is financially supporting the forward movement of the church. She acted as co-laborer for Paul with most biblical scholars agreeing that she likely used her own social influence as a means of protection for and a means of lobbying for the advancement of Christianity. If you go back to some of the oldest Greek manuscripts of the Book of Romans, there are several subscripts to the text, and they say things like, written to the Romans through Phoebe of Corinth. Written to the Romans from Corinth through Phoebe, the minister. Phoebe was trusted with bringing this letter to the Romans, and as a letter carrier, she wasn't a postal worker as we know it today. 
she was actually acting as Paul's proxy, even diving deeper into the details of the message, teaching its meanings and clarifying issues where needed. Paul calls her his sister, thereby confirming her as a trusted leader, just as he called his male co-laborers brothers. It says a great deal that she was entrusted with these critical words to go to, go to the people of Rome that was the center of all culture at the time. She was an envoy for Christianity. She led for the Christians, all of us, she led into that space that was dangerous and difficult and anti to what she stood for, and yet Paul trusted her to go and to lead because, friends, she was called by God and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite women in the New Testament is Lydia. We read about her in Acts 16. She's a business person who sold purple cloth, and she's a pagan who came to know Jesus. She was baptized along with her entire household, and she then invites the apostles to her home. Lydia is the manager of her household, and we read that the apostles again visited her at her home at the end of Acts 16. It was a big deal that they were meeting in the home of a female householder. Gordon Fee suggests this. He says, to put it plainly, the church is not likely to gather in a person's house unless the householder also functioned as its natural leader. Thus, Lydia would have held the same role in the church, in her house, as she did at the, as the master of her household. Lydia served as episcopos, an overseer, a manager for the Christian community in Philippi. I want to pause for a moment at the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16. I'm going to read the first seven of those verses aloud. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sancria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as it is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca, sometimes we call Prisca Priscilla, and Aquila, my co-workers, in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for life, for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Israelites who are in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. I would love to spend a whole morning talking to you about one little name in verse 7. Her name is Junia. She's a woman, and Paul calls her an apostle. Now, often these greeting sections of Scripture, where Paul appears to me reading lots of names, are an overlooked Read, A, because name pronunciation is hard, <laughs> and B, because it, it's hard to understand the purpose. Why is he spending all this time calling out these individual people? But in the first 16 verses of Romans 16, Paul mentions 29 individuals. 27 of them he calls out by name, and one-third of those 27 are women. They're called deacon, 
They're called fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They're called saints. They're called prominent among the apostles. Scholars largely believe that Paul's greetings here are an illustration of the teachings that he has passed on for the first 15 chapters of Romans and names people in various house churches because he is hoping to promote respect and grace among the people of these early believing communities. Many scholars actually, actually believe that Paul is building a social imperative into his words, purposely choosing to mention believers of varying ethnic backgrounds, social status, and that Paul is specifically calling out the names of women to encourage other women to embrace a leadership role in their own communities of faith. At the very least, Paul is placing men and women on a level playing field, recognizing that both genders have positively contributed to his work. So to answer our second question, what did women do? Women acted as church leaders, faithfully serving as co-laborers on mission for God. Finally, I want us to examine how Jesus interacted with and championed women. This is going to be a very quick skate through <laughs> a lot of powerful accounts of what Jesus did during his time on earth. First, it's important to note that the story of Jesus himself is heralded by two women, Mary and Elizabeth. We see their stories paralleled along that of their husbands, Luke and Zechariah, in the book of Luke. Simeon and Anna recognize the role of the baby Savior, praising God for him and prophesying his role of redemption for the people of Israel. Dr. Gupta, in his book, emphasizes that Jesus saw women and men alike in his parables and in his works of healing. Again, as you examine the book of Luke, often you'll see a back and forth between a healing of a woman and a healing of a man and a conversation with a woman and a conversation with a man. Jesus broke societal norms by seeing women for who they truly were. He protected the woman who was caught in adultery. He conversed with women and never taught that, treated them as less than in any way. When he saw and he met with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, taking note of the difficult situation she found herself in and spent intentional time with her as she asks him some pretty heavy-hitting theological questions. This was not a simple surface, simple surface conversation. He recognized her worth. He recognized the depth of her questions, and he met her there. Jesus is ministered to by women at the home of a Pharisee in Luke 7 and at the home of Simon the leper in Mark 14 and Matthew 26. And he was meant to be anointed by the two women at the tomb before they discover that he is risen. Jesus even had female disciples like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna who helped provide for him out of their own resources as we read about in Luke chapter 8. Jesus never gave us an example of women somehow being inferior to men, nor did he tell us that women were only suited to serve in an inferior capacity. You see, Jesus elevated women. He invested in them. He taught them. He brought them into a circle of influence equally as he did men. I hope you can see. <laughs> I hope that in a treasure trove of information about what God says about the value of both genders acting as co-laborers for his glory and his mission, 
that there is sufficient evidence in Scripture to demonstrate that the leadership of women is critical to the life of the church. But I do want to quickly bring attention to the fact, because I hope that you feel equipped today to engage in meaningful conversation, that there are sections of Scripture that are often used to refute the affirmation of women in leadership or as the role of, in the role of lead pastor in some churches. Now, before we dive into just one of those examples, I do want to share some perspective of you with you that I learned from Reverend Tara Beth Leach. She reminds us that as Christians, we are not in a battle. The battle's been won, friends. We are in the body of Christ do not need to embrace anger or snarkiness or take things personally when we encounter differing opinions. It is only our job to know our argument, to witness faithfully to God's word, to pray for those who oppose us, and to keep our eyes on Jesus. What we also want to do faithfully, though, is read Scripture in its full context. Now, there's one key verse that I want to highlight that often comes up in conversation as an example of why it is so crucial that we read Scripture in light of its original context and in light of what the larger story of the Word of God tells us. Again, who are women? What did women do? How did Jesus treat women? So this example actually comes from Paul, who we just learned demonstrated a great appreciation for female leadership in the ministry. The book of 1 Timothy finds the Ephesian Christians with a pretty serious set of circumstances. There were patterns of behavior forming that were informed by false teachers, but they had begun to infiltrate the church. There was no formal training in the Torah available to women and many Ephesian women were leading pagan temple worship services. In addition, there was a form of goddess worship that was becoming increasingly widely accepted. There was an ancient version, if you will, of the battle of sexes brewing. Some Christian women were convinced that they held some superior wisdom and directly challenged the church's male leaders. Now, when we read the verses within their context— we see that Paul is speaking to a specific church at a specific time. In verse 12, Paul says, I do not, we read in our, many of our translations, I do not permit a woman to teach. If we look specifically at Paul's words within the context of the Ephesian church, knowing what the church was facing, knowing the conditions into which Paul was speaking, and realizing the verb tense that Paul is using. The verb tense used in, this, in these verses is more accurately read, I am not presently permitting a woman to teach. And in light of the remarks of authority of, about authority of women over men, that continues on in 1 Timothy, the Greek word that is used is authenteo, and it's incredibly rare. There's quite a bit of scholarly disagreement about whether this word authenteo is, 
in its authoritative tone is neutral or negative, but we do know that it speaks to a domineering form of control. Read with that definition, in its, in its context, it's easy to see that these words from Paul were highly applicable to a situation in which women had decided that they knew better than men, that they somehow were given some sort of special authority. Remember, what did God create us to do? He created male and female to serve together and alike on mission for him. So this was clearly an example of a false teaching infiltrating the church, and Paul felt compelled to address it. His words are descriptive. They're not prescriptive forever and ever, amen. They're meant to speak to one situation in one church. Dr. Gupta reminds us again to point back to what we know from scriptural evidence elsewhere. God is not honored when one group dominates another. Rather, new creation is evident in men and women coming together in faith and love, showing humility, holiness, and self-restraint. Now, if I had more time this morning, I'd tell you about women like Phoebe Palmer, who is called the mother of the holiness movement. I'd tell you about Amanda Smith, a formerly enslaved woman who preached at an 1890 revival and who Phineas Brzee, the founder of the Nazarene denomination, said this about as she preached as, as, as I have rarely ever heard anybody preach in strains of holy eloquence and unction, the Lord opened heaven on the people in mighty tides of glory. We talk about women like Catherine Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, I tell you about women like Susanna Wesley and Mildred Wincoop. We talk about Nina Gunter and we talk about Tara Beth Leach and we talk about Beth Moore and we talk about, we talk about Carla Sundberg. All women who have faithfully stood and taught and led even when opposition stood in their way. But most of all, friends, what I want for us on this day that celebrates women is that we realize that without the voices of women in the pulpit and in our leadership structures, God's mission for the church is only half fulfilled. If we are a people who embrace the new creation, who obey God's call for all of humanity to live out his mandate for this world, to witness to the work he's doing to bring justice and healing and make all things new, we must affirm that both men and women have a place to lead. I want the young people of our youth group who are sitting up here this morning to know that their gender is not a limitation on God's call on their lives. The way we talk about women in leadership in the church matters. And the way we demonstrate Holy Spirit-led leadership by both genders matters. And I know you will because you are a loving, wonderful people. I want our church to welcome our first female pastor with open arms and to confidently and boldly go tell our community that we are a body of believers who emboldens men and women alike to witness to his goodness and his faithfulness in a broken world. Now, it's likely for all of us that there is some heart reconciliation that needs to happen in order to make sure that 
We're not perpetuating hierarchy where God intends for equal partnership to be present. Me too. I have that work to do too. Maybe that's in a work relationship. Maybe that's in a marriage. Maybe that's in a friendship. The good news today, church, is that Jesus made a way to abolish those systems and structures that we've erected that act as stumbling blocks to his plan. And the path to restoration and reconciliation goes straight through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to come to the table of communion. And as we do so, I want us to be reminded that Jesus is making all things new, including our relationships with one another, and that we are called to be people of that kind of hope and newness only possible because of Jesus.